Now he approached, sure-footed and deadly. He put a hand on his longsword. The hilt was cold and black and lovely. Now, you can come with us, and maybe the magistrate lets you live. Or, he nodded to the drop, you can take your chances with the judge. The boy looked up. His eyes shone like chips of ice through his long, dark hair. He smiled. I'll take my chances, thanks. He spread his arms wide and fell backward over the brink. What's up, you guys? Welcome to episode three. If you're not caught up yet, I will have a link to a playlist in the video description where you can watch from the beginning. Question of the week, are you an audiobook person or a textbook person? I'll let you know my answer at the end of the episode, which may surprise you, but I wanna hear from you in the comments. All right, on to the good stuff, episode three. I'm Josh Call, and this is Last Coliseum. The thief's palms were sweaty. He wiped them on his breeches. They left matching, smeary handprints on the homespun. His stomach felt tangled up in knots. No matter how many jobs he'd done, nor how much he'd prepared, when he woke up that morning, there was always the same rolling, river-sick feeling. Like he'd be creeping under the eaves, then curl over without warning and lose his breakfast. Not that there was any breakfast to lose, Save for a half-tumble of fire whiskey for the nerves, Lee's stomach was an empty tomb. That's how it always was. As if fearing arrest, his appetite deserted him on the night before a job, and only came back when he was home safe, his pockets heavy with plunder. He padded through the long hallways of the cavernous manse, his feet a whisper on the polished stone. He moved swiftly and with purpose, ignoring the rich tapestries on the walls and the curving chandeliers overhead. The lock on the burnished bronze door had taken longer to crack than he would have liked. In the back of his mind, he was counting down the seconds as his window of opportunity narrowed. He had to be quick. He'd been planning this job for almost two turns, three if you counted all those days in the library, wading through stacks of dusty building records till he found the right one. Even then, the floor plan he'd found was about a century old. Any number of things might have changed in the time between, least of all where Lady kept her treasures. But so far, it all looked much the same as it did in the drawing. Now he came to the cavernous great room, its high vaulted ceiling supported by slender stone columns. He didn't see any house guards milling about. No doubt Lord and Lady Cliffside had brought them along to the sanctuary for afternoon mass. All the same, he scurried across the great room and down the other corridor like a rat. For thieves and vermin alike, nothing inspired fear like wide-open spaces with no place to hide. And there it was, at the far end of the hall, just like in the diagram. It was the sort of door built to withstand a siege, nine feet of dark polished ironwood with huge black knockers and horizontal bands across the top and bottom. A team of marauders could hammer away at it for hours with a battering ram and still walk away with nothing more than a handful of splinters. Lee grinned and rubbed his palms together, recalling one of the first rules of thieving. The bigger the door, the dumber the lock. Aye, throw a crossbar behind it and the hammer of Cirrus couldn't knock it down, but on its own? Any wastrel with a clever pair of hands could have it swinging wide quicker than you could say lockpick. And this wastrel had very clever hands. In the distance, the Vesper's bell clanged as the door drifted open on oiled hinges, Lee left it open only a crack as he slipped inside. Vespers meant the start of a new service, and that meant that Lord and Lady and their throat-slicing houseguards were on their way back. 
The carpet's thick fibers kept the impression of his feet as he slunk through the bedchamber like a tomcat. He scanned the room. Several of the ladies' dresses were strewn across the coverlet of the enormous double-wide bed. The door to an adjoining room was ajar. Her wardrobe, the thief guessed. Lady must have gotten dressed in a rush. Near the bed, there was a small lockbox. Lee saw gold spilling out of its velvet-lined mouth. His eyes widened. A hungry, avaricious part of him crept toward the treasure. The rest of him followed on its heels. So wrapped was he with the treasure in the box, and not even locked, it was practically asking to be taken, that he didn't note the steel breastplate leaning against the bedroom door, nor the short sword poking out from under one of the dresses on the bed. He pawed through the tangle of gold and silver. His eyes passed over without seeing the glittering rings and gemstones and amulets. He frowned. It wasn't there. The image of the emerald pendant was etched in his mind. It had been ever since he saw it walking out of mass some two moons before. He could feel frustration thrumming in his fingertips. What if she'd worn it today? That'd be just his bleeding luck, wouldn't it? Something was wrong. He froze there like a child caught with his hand in the jar of sweetmeats. He couldn't quite place it, but he'd long learned to heed the wisdom of the hairs on the back of his neck. And right now they were javelin straight. It was the smell. It was barely there anymore. It had all but wafted out through the open balcony doors which overlooked the city, but even then, unmistakable. He'd smelt it before under the cloying perfume stink that wafted out through a copper brothel's open doors. It was that heavy, stinking smell of sex which made his stomach drop. Someone sniffed. He leapt to his feet and spun round. The two sets of eyes he found there were both wide with shock. The house guard was naked to the waist, his breeches only half-laced. His neck was spotty with love bites. And behind him, a mousy woman, still clad in her mistress's dress, was staring at him in horror. Her hair was sweat-pasted to her brow, and her cheeks were a splotchy red. Around her flushed neck, looking very out of place, an emerald pendant in the shape of a seven-point star. For a long moment, no one moved. Then the scullion shrieked, and all hell broke loose. The dresses on the bed were hurled into the air as the house guard scooped up his short sword. Even before unlimbering it from his sheath, he cleaved at the rogue and clubbed him hard in the shoulder. Lee hissed and sprang for the door. The young woman was already there. She yelped and batted at him with her bare hands. Without entirely meaning to, the thief found himself reaching for the pendant bouncing above her collar. She hopped away from him as his fingers closed around the emerald and toppled backward into the ironwood door. It slammed closed and the lock snapped into place. The soldier was coming at him again, this time swinging naked steel. Lee ducked beneath the silver streak and rolled for the balcony. The pendant was locked between his fingers. He hadn't come this far to lose it now. His life, maybe, but not his prize. He could feel the house guard bracing himself for a charge. Lee snapped up one of the silky dresses on the bed. As the soldier came barreling after him, he flung it over the brute's head, then he lunged onto the balcony. Another basic rule of sneak thievery, always have a ready exit. Fifty feet down to the cobbles, maybe more. Directly below, there was a thin blue channel branching from the main jacksum that ran parallel to the crescent shape of the cliff face. Four feet across, maybe five. No way to know how deep. And if you guessed wrong, there. Ten feet below and hugging the cliff, there was a narrow pathway like a goat trail hewn into the stone. He'd seen servants and couriers using the trails. The huge winch lifts that flanked the waterfall cost a whole crown each way. 
He stepped toward the lip of the balcony and reached for his climbing hook. A thin streak of fire swept across his back as the sword point sliced through his tunic. Lee staggered. He peered over his shoulder. The house guard's face was dark with fury. Fifty feet or a sword in the guts. It was no question, really. He vaulted over the railing and dropped like a stone. Keeper Nodding was in a foul mood. He'd been on his feet since sunup without a bite to eat. His skull hurt like the blazes, and whichever whore son was supposed to relieve him was going on two hours late. The other grey cloak who'd been sharing his detail noticed his ill temper. He's coming, not, he reassured him. Give it another hour, he'll be here. Another hour. Not scowled. It was bad enough that they'd given him this detail, roasting like a hog in his armor, walking this same hundred-yard circuit day after day while Keeper Yammermouth over there jabbered his ear off. But now, to make it all worse, it was finally goddamn sundown and he was still goddamn here. He needed a goddamn drink. He spat in the channel and started his circuit again, if only to get away from the other gray cloaks unending nattering. He was going on about what his wife had made for supper last night. Five moons. Five moons since they'd given him this detail with no end in sight. Before that, he'd been stationed up in the keep, guarding the governor's wife's rooms. It was dull work, aye, and there was always the chance that the sometimes raving crone might take a fancy to you and try to lure you onto her four-poster. But at least they fed him. The scraps from Femeriel's table were a feast of kings compared to what his half-crown a turn wage would fetch in the coppers. Suppose he should be thankful that this was all he'd gotten. After Lady P's circlet went missing, she demanded that every steward and handmaid in her service be stretched on the rack and beheaded unless the coronet was found. The last time he'd gone up to the keep, there were fourteen heads decorating the entrance to the holdfast. But no circlet. And for the keeper who'd been on duty at the time, the one who'd nodded off at his post, he was lucky that all he'd earned was a demotion. If they'd found out just why he'd fallen asleep, that he and a couple others had snuck a firkin of cooking sherry from the kitchens and polished it off between the three of them, there might have been a fifteenth head over the entry. Still, for the five moons since he'd been brought low, literally brought down to the city proper, he'd held on to some small fantasy that he'd get the chance to prove his mettle and be restored to glory, at least restored to his plum job in the Grey Keep. That's how it happened for Lord White Rose, wasn't it? God blesses the man who waits, the book said. But Cirrus above, he wished that God would move his saintly ass already. And then he did, with a splash. The figure smashed into the water with a crack like thunder, not flinched. He caught some of the spray on his face. When he opened his eyes, the surface of the water was frothy white. Whoever had fallen still hadn't surfaced. Probably some steward had tripped over himself and took the quick way down. Wouldn't be the first time. Notting sighed and loosened his sword belt. His crossbow and scabbard clattered onto the jetty. This job don't pay enough, he thought as he readied himself to dive. Thief, roared a voice from above. Stop that boy! Not froze mid-dive. His eyes narrowed. He reached for his sword belt and unslung the crossbow. The jetty shook as three more gray cloaks, Yammermouth among them, tromped over to meet him. Notting took command easily, his hangover forgotten. He was a sergeant after all, had been at least. He dispatched two of them to the other side of the jetty, and the third he had double back to cover the rear. They all obeyed without comment or question. Even Yammermouth was for once blessedly silent. Keep sharp, he murmured as they split up, and shoot a wound. Let's make the headsman earn his pay. Then they began the hunt. Lee heard all of this. 
The breath was squeezed out of his lungs when he smashed into the channel, and in a blind panic he came up for air directly below the gray cloak's feet. Stop that boy! He heard the house guard shout from the balcony. The scummy planks of the jetty creaked overhead as the keepers started their search. Lee waited for their clanking footsteps to recede. He took long, slow breaths to steady his racing pulse. Then he sank below the water's murky surface. The bottom of the channel was caked with sludge. He felt his hands sinking into it as he half swam, half crawled through the water. He kept his eyes screwed shut. They burned when he opened them. Besides, if there was anything to see in the murk save the thick, slimy brownness, Lee was quite sure he didn't want to see it. He kicked like a frog to propel himself through the water. It was slow going. Only one of his hands was making any progress. The other was still wrapped tight around the pendant. He didn't dare try to stash it in his pocket. If it fell out as he swam, he'd never find it in the murk. He waited until the absolute last second before coming up for breath. His lungs burned. He broke the surface as silently as he could and sucked in greedy lungfuls of precious air. His heart skipped a beat. One of the keepers, he couldn't tell which one, not by his feet, had paused not ten feet from his hiding place beneath the jetty. The soldier swept his crossbow over the water. He heard a gentle puttering sound behind him. Lee peered over his shoulder and bit back a yelp. It was a rat, huge and gray and bloated, with hungry beady black eyes. It kept its nose above the surface as it clawed through the water. It was coming toward him. It was after his blood. He couldn't see the way it wafted off him in the turbid water, but he felt the burn of filth settling into the cut on his back. Forget the headsman. If the gray cloaks got their hands on him, it'd be the infection that took him. The keeper disappeared around a corner. Immediately, Lee was pulling himself up onto the deck. He actually felt the big rat's claws scrabbling at his thigh as he cleared the surface of the water. He lay there, sprawled across the jetty for a few long moments, his chest heaving. An indistinct shout, a quarrel thunked into the planks a handbreadth from his thigh. He sprang to his feet. The gray cloak was fitting another bolt into his crossbow, yanking back the cord as he ran toward the boy. Lee vaulted across the channel to the other jetty. A window imploded behind him. He heard the keeper shouting for his fellows, but he didn't dare look back. He spun around a corner and out of sight. There was a market up ahead, with billowy canvas awnings to protect the stalls from the sun. At midday, there might have been enough folk around for him to lose the keepers in the throng. Not so at dusk. By now, half the stalls were deserted, and a few of the remaining merchants and buyers gave him queer looks as he blazed past. Stop! In the name of the keep! Another quarrel whistled past. He felt the wind as it ruffled by a few inches from his face. He swore. They'd fire at him in the middle of the market? These damn fool gray cloaks were going to get someone killed. Him, if they had anything to say about it. Don't shoot, you son of a pig! Nodding roared. What happens if you hit someone? The son of a pig who was running next to him didn't reply, but he slung his crossbow back over his shoulder. Nott had ditched his own weapon on the jetty. He'd go back for it once they had the thief in irons. And even if he didn't, he'd rather go back to the barracks with a prisoner minus one crossbow than keep the weapon but lose the boy. The thief rounded a corner and disappeared down an alleyway. Nott charged after him and almost smashed into the other keeper, who had stopped short at the alley mouth. Nott cursed him, cursed his mother, the poxy whore who didn't have the good sense to toss him off the stone bridge, and cursed the sergeant who'd put a sword in his hand instead of letting him discover his true calling juggling horse apples. The alley was empty. The boy was gone. 
Keeper nodding, let off one last thunderous curse, this one directed at Cirrus for the cruel joke he'd played in saddling him with this idiot-at-arms. His fantasies of being lauded by the captain and returned to his former position, promoted even, it was a fantasy after all, were dashed. He scowled and smashed apart a discarded crate beneath his hobnail boot. Up there, son of a pig pointed, down the alley just past a narrow set of steps that led up to a second-floor landing. A figure vanished onto the roof. Knott's hope flared to life. Don't just stand there, he screamed. After him! Lee scrambled over the pitch roof's peak, sliding down the other side feet first. The gray cloaks exploded onto the roof a dozen paces behind him. Another bolt crunched into the tile a few yards ahead. Lee snapped it underfoot as he ran. He chanced a quick glance behind him. The keepers, by now there were only two, were dogged, alternately gaining and losing precious ground on him as one or the other leapt between rooftops or clambered over a parapet. They'd stopped shouting. They didn't have enough breath to do that and run. He could hear shingles cracking beneath their armored weight as they puffed after him. He wished that one or both would lose his footing and take a tumble. He was nearing the limit, his own and the city's. He could see the sharp line where the rooftops gave way to the yawning orange sunset. It was as if the last half of the city had been snipped away with a huge pair of shears. He sprang onto the next rooftop and felt the thick woven thatch sag beneath him. Up ahead, a five-story monstrosity rose up sheer and terrible to block his passage. On the left, a forty-foot drop to the flagstones, a broken leg. On the right, four hundred to the lowlands, a broken everything. Behind him, Keeper Steel. There was a window, high on the wall of the five-story some nine feet above him. It was open, a six-foot chasm between this building and the next. Lee didn't like it. If he missed the sill, he'd hit the wall and smashed his legs to flinders on the cobbles below. And even if he didn't, it'd take him eight, maybe twelve seconds to climb through the window. Plenty of time for one of those gray cloaks to put a quarrel in his ass. But he didn't have to like it. The keepers were negotiating the last roof before this one. No time to think, no time to worry. Jump or be caught. He ran for the window. The roof sighed beneath him. He dimly registered the thatch crackling underfoot and was allowed only a brief moment of surprise before his leg plunged through the straw. He sank up to his thigh in the thatch. The keepers closed in. The other guard had raised his crossbow to his shoulder. Nodding put his hand on the other man's arm. Alive. The boy had pulled his leg out of the hole. He was looking back and forth between the two keepers. Nought had seen that cornered animal look before. They all got it when they realized that there was no way out. The end of the road. He motioned for the other one to keep his distance. No telling what the boy might be holding. He'd seen too many gray cloaks move in too soon and take a knife in the gut for their trouble. The thief glanced back at the high window. Nodding could tell what he was thinking. I wouldn't try it, he said. Unless you're a jackrabbit, you won't make it halfway. The boy's face was defiant. He spat at him. Not didn't mind. His blood was up. His senses felt sharp, a predator primed for the kill. He smelled blood. The boy took a small step back, then another. Five steps behind him, the sprawling empty. Careful, the keeper warned. It's a long way down to hell. The thief sneered and raised a fist. Dangling by a broken gold chain, the emerald pendant glowed like green fire in the dying light. Now where do you get that? Nodding murmured. You want it? He held it out to the keeper, not fought his urge to reach for it. Fetch! 
and he hucked it as hard as he could over the gray cloak's shoulder. Nodding didn't even flinch. He caught a glint of gold as the pendant disappeared up the boy's shirt sleeve. He smirked. You're gonna have to do better than that, boy. Now he approached, sure-footed and deadly. He put a hand on his longsword. The hilt was cold and black and lovely. Now, you can come with us, he whispered, and maybe the magistrate lets you live. Or, he nodded to the drop, you can take your chances with the judge. He waited. One moment became five. He watched with satisfaction as the fight left the boy. His shoulders slumped forward in defeat. His arms fell slack. That's it, nodding crooned. He motioned for the other keeper to close in. He unlimbered the irons from his belt. Easy does it. All over now, the boy looked up. His eyes shone like chips of ice through his long, dark hair. He smiled. I'll take my chances, thanks. He spread his arms wide and fell backward over the brink. No! The keeper lunged for him as the thief disappeared into the empty. His fingertips grazed the rough fabric of his tunic, and he was gone. The other gray cloak flinched at the string of curses that issued from Keeper nodding as easy as breathing. His hangover was back. Flames licked at his temple with each step as he stormed back up the roof. He didn't look for the thief's splat on the hard pan. With his luck, they'd send him down tomorrow to sift through the boys' viscera for that damned bauble anyhow. It was only as the thatch started to give beneath him that he lightened his step. He stripped off his gauntlet and kneaded at his throbbing brow. When he opened his eyes, son of a pig was staring at him. He started to speak. Not a word, not growled, or you're going after him. Whatever he'd been about to say, the other gray cloak thought better of it. I need a drink, thought nodding again as he climbed down from the rooftop. It was a thought he had often, sometimes before noon, but always by dusk. Another thought followed at its heels. Where's my goddamn crossbow? Lee woke up dangling over oblivion. By then it was full dark, the sunset only a faint orange smudge above the fringe of mountains in the west. His face felt heavy and full of blood. Below him, above him, the sky was a cobalt bowl flecked with mica, the hard pan a cracked gray ceiling overhead. He groped for the thin silk cord and righted himself. He was roughly sitting in the rope harness looped around his thighs and waist. His neck ached. Some twenty feet above, the building which had saved him, like all the others at the brink, was jutting out over the empty. One of the wooden posts which kept it aloft groaned with the thief's weight. His pulse quickened. He remembered flinging the climbing hook like a fishing line at the post as he plummeted. The phrase, luck of the devil, came to mind. But then, if he'd missed, he'd only have had about five seconds to revel in his mistake. Was the pendant worth it? The pendant. His heart leapt into his throat. It was a horrible moment before he felt the hard weight of it against his forearm. He slipped it from his sleeve and pressed it to his lips, just to know for certain it was there. When it was safely in his pocket, he started on his slow ascent. Teeth gritted, he rocked himself back and forth like a pendulum until he could touch the cliff face. The post creaked in protest, and the climbing hook slid a little. He grasped his rocky handholds like a lifeline and began inching his way skyward. He rested a while in the V-shaped recess between the post and the wall, he was long past his limit. It felt like his muscles had been pierced with white-hot needles. He ran his fingers along the deep grooves the climbing hook's teeth had scored in the worn wood. A shiver ran down his spine. The post was perhaps five feet from the side of the building's underbelly. 
There was a narrow sliver between where this one ended and the next one began. Between them, freedom. Lee frowned. It was an easy climb, a few feet sideways and then straight up if there were handholds. If there were handholds. Save for a hairline fissure that twisted down the cliff like lightning, the rock was sheer. He'd have to jump, and if he missed, the cloaks would have their thief splat after all. He reached for the climbing hook. The post groaned again and started to tilt. The hard pan loomed dizzyingly, twisting his stomach in knots. Lee blanched. He could see the shaft of the rivet between the post and the underbelly, about an inch of it. Now two inches, now five. Lee took a breath and flexed his stiff fingers. They felt thick and leaden. After this, the only thing he'd be wrapping them around was a tankard, or the black iron bars at the gates of the void. He swallowed hard, then jumped for his life. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please hit the subscribe button and the notification bell so that you don't miss an episode and share it with a friend. I would say that I am more of a textbook person as opposed to an audiobook person, but over time I've gotten busier and busier. It's hard to find the time to actually sit down with a book. So audiobooks have been a great resource to be able to keep my, my reading while having this busier schedule. Let me know what you guys think. I want to hear from you and I will catch you guys next week.